welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Kath mentioned that we're about to start a new series, which we are. It's called Christmas Unwrapped. I hope you've been enjoying the series that we have been running of late. I think, certainly for me, I've enjoyed being a part of preaching them and I and certainly as a listener, I think it's great just to have some continuity and each week you sort of get reminded of what happened the week before and then you sort of build on that. I've certainly found it helpful. Anyway, this morning we're going to have a look at, um, the, we're going to start by looking at Christmas Unwrapped and it's really coming from the book of Luke, the first two chapters. And over the next few weeks, as we lead into Christmas, we're going to have a look at some of the events surrounding uh, the birth of Jesus Christ as we come into Christmas, obviously. And so just quickly, just a bit of background about this book of Luke. Um, it's written, surprisingly enough, by a guy called Luke. <laughs> you don't get any prize for that at all. Um, but Luke, for those of you who may have a bit of familiarity with the Bible, um, we learn from the Bible itself that Luke was a doctor or a physician, that he was a good friend of Paul who, who wrote much of the New Testament, as did Luke. In fact, Luke himself wrote two books in the New Testament. He wrote the book of Luke and he also wrote the book of Acts. He was a good friend of Paul, an apostle, as I mentioned. And he, we actually read about Luke and Paul and some of their adventures in the book of Acts where they're actually travelling together. This book was written around about 60 AD. Okay, So within 30 years of Jesus' death, burial and resurrection and within 60 years of his birth. And uh, the purpose of this book is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And it's kind of summarised as, as Luke addresses it to a person. He's called Theophilus, and Luke addresses him most excellent Theophilus. And so there's a sense in which this guy is probably a person of some standing in the community, possibly a lawyer, possibly a judge or a magistrate or something of that ilk. Um, but he's written to, uh, Luke has written to Theophilus, and I guess indirectly to all of us. But the, po- the point that he writes for is this, that, he may know and we may know the certainty of the things that he had heard. Okay, so Theophilus had heard some and been taught some amazing things about this person, Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, some of those things in the natural are very hard to believe. And Luke was writing to assure him that what he had heard was not just the product of an overactive imagination. Because, you know, when you read, even as we get into Luke, you know, you don't have to get too far into Luke and suddenly you're hearing about angels and you're hearing about virgin births and you go on and you're hearing about the ministry of Jesus, you're talking about uh, miracles of healing, you're talking about demonic spirits coming out of people, you're talking about even the dead being raised and all of that sort of stuff. It can sound a little bit crazy at first. And so Luke is writing to Theophilus and saying, look, I want to I give you a solid foundation on which to, to be assured of your faith. Okay, this story... Um, you know, you, if it was just a story, it would probably start something like, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But Luke doesn't start it like that. He actually starts it more like this. Not long ago, not far from here, amongst the people still living. Okay, it is recent history. And, you know, some people in their, I guess, you know, in their census, people put all sorts of crazy things when it comes to religions. And some people put down, you know, that I'm a Jedi Knight. And uh, that's fine, they can do that uh, on their census. And it, and it doesn't matter, they could even create a like-minded community and they could come up with a Jedi Knight code by which to live by. 
But at the end of the day, the foundation of that entire movement would be George Lucas's imagination. There's, there's nothing more to it than that. Luke is saying, that's not what this is about. I want you to know the certainty of the things that you've been taught because they are grounded in history. And so the topic, the heading of this morning's message is just history, not fantasy. Okay, now the other night, um, there was a bit of a bingle down here in Mawson Lakes. You probably saw the picture of the car. Some guy or people in a in Nissan Skyline um, obviously hit something at great speed or hit a stoby pole actually and the back end of the car was still around the stoby pole. The front end of the car was about 50 metres away. And... Uh, this report was written down. It says, a car split in two after crash at Mawson Lakes. Police have released photos of a car that split in half when it crashed in Mawson Lakes overnight and say the occupants are lucky to be alive. Witnesses reported two males ran from the destroyed car and despite an extensive search of the surrounding area, they weren't located. At about 9.30am the next day, a 30-year-old Para Hills man attended the Golden Grove Police Station and stated that he was the driver. He is not seriously injured. At this stage, it's unclear if there was another person in the car at the time of the collision. It's believed that there may have been another vehicle involved and police are asking for any witnesses who may have seen the maroon uh, maroon skyline before the crash to come forward. Okay, so we've got this scenario where they've had this accident and there's been some witnesses and they've seen a couple of people running away. Now this guy rocks up at the police station and he says, "I, I was the only person in the car. He probably also said, I was only doing 60. And this massive wombat just jumped out of nowhere and and I just had to steer to miss it because I love animals. And and it just happened like that. That's that's all there was to it, you know. And so that was his story. Um, But the fact is there were other witnesses. And the other witnesses said, no, actually there were two people that we saw running from the scene. And possibly it seems like there may have even been another car involved. And so it's interesting that the next day you read that police are interviewing two occupants of the car. So this guy's story didn't hold much weight because of the extra witness evidence that was around about. And so I want to start this morning by saying that whether you're a police officer investigating an accident or a crime, or whether you're a historian trying to get to the bottom of what really happened some time ago in history, there are certain things which you need to take into account that are either going to, I guess, strengthen the claims of whatever individual and, and help you get to the bottom of what really happened or that are going to sort of blow those things out of the water. And just some of those things, for example, might be like the number of witnesses. Okay, the more witnesses you have regarding any given situation, the more likely you are to be able to get to the bottom of what actually took place. Okay, so if you interview enough people, you're going to find out pretty much what took place. Now, those people are all going to say slightly different things. And... Um, you know, that's to be under- expected because they all have a slightly different vantage point. They're all slightly different perspective. And so, <clears throat> you know, in an accident, for example, you know, one person might be on one side of the car and so they might just see the car veer off the side of the road, but the person on the other side might see that there was a blowout or something happened, you know. So, <clears throat> but the thing that's not in dispute is that the car went off the road and hit a stoby pole or whatever. Okay, so, you know, so basically through sifting all the information apart, you'll find the thing that everyone agrees on is generally the thing that actually happened. Okay, that makes sense. Interestingly, imagine this scenario. Imagine the police had rocked up at the scene just after the accident and there was two guys who had just got out of the car and there was another two guys also in a Nissan Skyline who just pulled up next to them. And all of those guys said, oh, we were just doing 60 and this, you know, this wombat sort of... The police were probably a little bit suspicious if everyone had exactly the same story. 
wouldn't they? Because it, was, it would seem like maybe they got together and colluded a little bit and come up with a story that sounds believable just so that we don't get ourselves in trouble. Okay, so whenever there's witness testimony, there usually is a little bit of difference between the testimonies. And, and I think that's important to know because some people, <coughs> they understand that we have, there are four Gospels, four stories about Jesus, and some people have a problem with the fact they're not all exactly the same. Now, I think it actually is good that they're all not exactly the same because it says that they haven't just got together and all written the same story. There are elements that are exactly the same. You'd expect that, but you would also expect differences because of different perspectives and different purposes in the writing of the gospel. That's the first thing. The second thing you want to take into consideration is the reliability of the witnesses. <clears throat> you know, and, and the things that determine the reliability are things like how close were they to the situation that happened? Obviously, if they were firsthand on the scene, eyewitnesses very close, you would expect that they would have a very accurate understanding of what took place. If they've heard it second or third hand, or if they were sort of, you know, a couple of miles down the road and just saw an explosion or something, you know, they're not going to have as much information. Therefore, the information is not likely to be as accurate as someone who was on, on the hand, on hand. What about the reputation or the character? of the witnesses, that also is going to come into play, isn't it? If a person is a fine, upstanding person in our community and they're, they're known to have, uh, be a person who, who is, is truthful and integrous, well, then again, that, that evidence that they give is, is likely to carry a little bit more weight than perhaps somebody who's just got out of the car and said, you know, I was doing 60, etc., and who, who has perhaps has a reputation for maybe abusing substances and maybe lying and a criminal record and all that sort of stuff. Maybe you would put a little bit more weight on one of those testimonies than the other. The other question that possibly would determine the um, credibility of a witness is do they have a vested interest in this, in perhaps telling a lie? Now again, this guy rocks up at the police station, he says, I was the only occupant. He's got a vested interest. He doesn't want to get his mate in trouble. Okay, so obviously it was found out that there was another guy in the car a little bit later on. Do they change their story over time when the pressure's on? As the other witnesses start to come forward, do they eventually cave in and say, yeah, okay, there was two of us in the car. Yes, I was speeding. Yes, I was actually racing another car, or whatever it might be. I don't know all the full stories, uh, ins and outs of that particular story. And even another aspect is, are there hostile witnesses? Are there people who actually don't have anything to gain? And perhaps if they could, would actually like to um, tell a lie, would actually like to undermine the story of the person, um, but has to step in and say, actually, I did see it. And actually, believe it or not, there actually was a wombat. Now, if a person who doesn't like the person who's had the accident comes in and says that sort of thing, again, that's probably going to hold a little bit of weight, that testimony, because in their natural self, they would probably be wanting to get the person in trouble. All right, and then it obviously comes down to the other, other evidence that is external that then either supports or denies the claim. And so, you know, there was a picture of the car, there was a picture of the, the, the bottle of um, whiskey or whatever it was lying on the road there and... You know, a whole other, other bunch of stuff. There'd probably be skid marks on the road and, you know, they'd be able to get their crash investigators in and work out approximately how fast they were going and all that sort of stuff. So there's the external evidence that comes together. And so although not too many people saw it, the police that weren't there will probably have a fairly good picture of what actually took place by the time they interview witnesses, by the time they look at the evidence that's on the ground. Okay, does that make sense? And so that's the process that, that, that uh, police would use and that's the process that, that historians use when they are looking back into history and saying, okay, what's the likelihood that this event actually took place? And so we're right at the start of the book of Luke and Luke actually is making a claim that he wants people to know the certainty of what's been taught. Okay, so I want to have a look through the first four chapters, uh, four verses of Luke. I'm going to read them to you now and then we're going to just unpack those a little bit in the light of those things I've just shared. 
So Luke starts his book like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write you an orderly account. Sorry, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the first thing then that Luke says, he starts off with many have undertaken to write an account. So this comes back to the number of witnesses. That's the first point I want to make tonight, this morning. Many have undertaken to make an account. What Luke is saying, there was not a scarcity of information about Jesus. Okay, there was a whole bunch of people who experienced Jesus Christ in the flesh, <clears throat> who had um, been benefactors of his ministry. You know, the people still living in Luke's day, uh, some would have obviously passed away and would have written down accounts, but others would have still been alive who he could have gone to and, written, and, and interviewed and he would have collected writings. And there would have been people who spoke about the healing that they've received, the miracles that they had observed, the fact that they were, their life was this way before they met Jesus and it was this way after they met Jesus. Okay? So there's a whole bunch, it seems like, in Luke's day of information that was around about this person, Jesus, and the sorts of things he'd done because these things weren't done in a corner. These things were not done you know, in, a, in a dark room somewhere. These things were done amongst the, the, the everyday lives of the people living in Israel wherever Jesus happened to travel at any given point in time. Okay, And these things had been written down by those who had seen and heard them. Now, the fact is that much of that material hasn't survived today. Now, is that a problem? Does that stress me out? No. Because it's just like, you know, give, give a 2,000 years down the track and many of your little notes that you've made and jotted down in your journals and diaries, those things would have been gone and consigned to the sands of history as well. But the fact is the things that did matter, the, the collation of those stories has come through to us in the four Gospels. Okay, the four Gospels were deemed to be more important than somebody's you know, scribbling in a little diary or what, however they used to take notes and, and back then. But these four accounts that we do have are deemed to be more important than all the rest of them put together because they, they actually come from those reports anyway. But the credibility of the people is quite impeccable. You know, they're people who were actually apostles of Jesus. They actually had a, a, a relationship with Jesus or they had a close relationship with those who did have a relationship with Jesus. And Luke was one of those people. Okay, so this just first up is in stark contrast to many of the other religions that are in the world today. Again, if you look at Islam and, and how that started with Muhammad, it starts very much centres around Muhammad and his supposed revelations, um, you know, his spiritual experience that happened, and then and then over time he began to teach these things to people, and you know, his his religion started, I guess, as, as a movement, as a as a. I guess almost like a social movement. And, and there was a lot of impetus behind what he had, not necessarily because, of what, because people thought he was a, a prophet or a miracle worker per se like Jesus, but that he was a good leader. He was a military leader. He was a tactician, etc. Et and there was, there was benefits associated with following a guy like that. Okay, so uh, Islam, Mormonism, Joseph Smith, you know, these things, these are um, systems, religions, faiths that originate with an individual but there is no uh, external witness that verifies what they actually saw or heard. There's a good chance they saw or heard something, but what that is, I guess we've got to look at the fruit of it. Okay? Whereas Jesus 
you know, his resurrection, his miracles, all these things, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people saw him and he stands alone, he stands distinct from any other religious leader because of that. It's one thing to teach something, it's another thing to have the power to back up what you're teaching. It's one thing to talk about resurrection, it's another thing to be resurrected. Okay? So that's the first thing. There's just a multitude of witnesses for all the things that we happened, that we've um, heard about that take place. The second thing if we want to have a look at is the reliability of those witnesses. Luke chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, Just as these were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, as I've mentioned, eyewitnesses, that's where the best testimony comes from. Those who saw the things firsthand. And many of those people, as I've mentioned, it was such a short time between when Jesus was walking on the earth and when Luke was writing that many of those people were still alive. And so he had access directly to eyewitness testimony of what actually took place. However, just knowing the truth, as we've said before, doesn't guarantee that people are actually going to tell the truth. Many people do have vested interests and a reason to, to bend the truth a little bit or spin a yarn. Um, and we've got to ask ourselves, fair question, is it likely that that's what these guys were doing? Did they start a religion because of, you know, they would be able to make a bit of money on the side or get a bit of popularity or pull the women or whatever it might be? You know, whatever reason might, a person might have, an agenda, we've got to say, is that likely in this scenario? Okay, so we see straight up that these guys... Uh, is there any evidence to suggest that they're telling the truth? Well, Paul doesn't just call them eyewitnesses or witnesses, but he also calls them servants. Yeah. Now, what that says to me is that something happened. In other words, their life was heading in a certain direction. They are witnesses of something that took place around the life of this man called Jesus, and they became servants. The direction of their life changed. They become servants of his, often at tremendous cost. And so... Their life was changed and these guys under the greatest pressure. I mean, some of these apostles, these original friends of Jesus who he was trying to um, get to understand the whole concept of the kingdom that he was going to launch into the world to be able to ultimately change the world. You know, some of these guys were family men. They were young people. They, they obviously had aspirations and dreams. They were business people. They had everything going on that you and I have got going on. And yet when they came into contact with this man, Jesus... The direction was changed and nothing but nothing but nothing could get them to change their story. If it was a story that was made up, the disciples knew it was made up. And people don't hang on to stories that are made up when the pressure's on. If they're making the money, if they're getting the fame or the popularity or the position in society, they will hang on to their story. It makes sense too. But when the wheels begin to fall off, when you suddenly aren't so popular anymore, when suddenly people begin to misunderstand you and persecute you and there's no money in it, what's the logical thing to do? The logical thing is to go back fishing, go back tax collecting, go back whatever else because that's easier. To hold on to this, this thing that could well take you to your death is craziness at the highest level. Again, it's different than, than, than some of the, the suicide bombers we see today. It's one thing to be convinced of something and die believing a lie. Lots of people die believing lies. Not too many people die knowing the truth. It's just not worth it. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference between someone strapping bombs themselves and blowing themselves up for, for a cause they believe is true than the disciples who did die for their faith, pretty much all of them. If, if they knew that Jesus was not the Messiah, why would they do it? You've got to come up with an answer to that question. 
even just the place to start the religion. If you're going to start a new religion, of all the places in the world to start it, Israel, the worst place. Because they, were so, they had been through so much. They had the very word of God. They had the commandments. They had the temple. They had the rules and the regulations. And they had been exiled and they'd come back from exile and they'd, they'd been persecuted severely because of their disobedience and their rebellion to God. And they were not just going to put up with any person coming on um, and just trying to start some new religion in their backyard. Okay, it was always going to be tough from the very beginning. And if you were starting a religion, you would probably go to Egypt or you'd probably go to Syria or you'd probably go to Greece or Rome or somewhere else where it's a lot more forgiving in terms of the, you know, the multicultural uh, feel of the place. They sort of accepted all sorts of religions and you can believe what you like and I'll believe what I like and, and we can all get along fine. With the Jews said, no, there's only one truth. And if you don't agree with us, you, you do so under pain of death. And that's why Jesus died and that's why many of his apostles died. All right, so we've looked at, I guess, just the, the multitude of witnesses. We've looked at the credibility of those witnesses, the fact they were willing to stand by their story to their very death. And then finally, I just want to have a look quickly at Luke's credibility as a historian, because again, that's important. Is he, was he careful? He claims to be careful. I've carefully investigated these things in order that you might know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Now, if he's making a claim like that, again, we need to be able to test that claim. And so um, it's interesting that for those that read, when you read his book, more than any other of the gospel, the things that does stand out is his attention to detail regarding the times, the places, the people. It's just full of um, references to things that can be cross-checked by modern archaeology today. And again, you've got to say, if the guy is accurate in those little things, is it, unlike, is it likely that he's going to miss the whole point of the story and get it wrong about Jesus? All right. So I guess people haven't always taken at face value what Luke said. You know, Christianity has always struggled with a bias against it. Um, you know, people have always challenged what the Bible has to say and called into question the credibility of it. And even Luke, um, you know, in, in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1, I just want to read you something quickly. It's an example of the sort of um, pedanticness of, of, of Luke as he writes. Um, he says this, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. So tetrarch was the leader of a certain area. Okay, so he's, he's given us, you know, if you want to pinpoint something in a time and place in history, that's the way to do it. Because there's so many things you can cross-check against. And for years, scholars argued over that scripture, I mean, they didn't argue about Pontius Pilate and Tiberius, because those guys are well sort of placed in history, but Licinius, I mean, who's ever heard of Licinius? Not too many people, but they had heard of one guy, Licinius, and their beef with Luke was that the only guy we know of in history, Licinius, was a guy who, who actually did rule, but he ruled in a place not where you're saying, and it was about 50 years earlier. And so based on that little bit of information that they disagreed with, they wanted to poo-hoo the whole book of Luke, essentially. Um, but guess what? Given time, given discoveries, an inscription is found, Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, and the scholars, the so-called scholars, they have the humble pie again. And that is just 
the case time and time and time and time again. Whenever there's a disagreement between science and the Bible or archaeology and the Bible or some, some other modern science and the Bible, it seems that it, it's always time is on the Bible's side. It's just that we, you know, we don't have all the information. It's like getting bits of a jigsaw puzzle as an archaeologist and trying to put things together. And so time and time and time again where people have questioned the accuracy of Luke's, um, as Luke as a historian, People have been proved wrong as just little bits of information come to light and say, yes, this did happen. Yes, that person did rule. Yes, that place did exist, and so on and so forth. And once you've got all that, that sort of supporting evidence, again, you've really got to be massively biased against Christianity to not even consider the possibility that Luke was right about the rest of the things he wrote. If he could be so pedantic about those things, how could he, how could he miss a fraud in the midst of all of that information? All right? So that's the first thing, if we're looking at Luke, we're looking at, I guess, his, his method was, was quite particular. He was very pedantic about the things he wrote. But the next point I want to look at Luke, just in finishing, is this, his motive. You know, some people do question his motive. They, they, they just are ticked off by the fact this guy's a Christian. They think the fact he's a Christian calls into question his credibility. I mean, obviously, you know, his, his reputation as a historian is, is tarnished by the fact he's a Christian. Surely that makes him biased. Surely he's got an agenda to push. Yeah? I would say, yeah, probably. The fact he's a Christian makes him biased, yes. But the fact you're not a Christian makes you biased. The fact that you're a Muslim makes you biased. The fact that you're an atheist makes you biased. The fact you're an agnostic. Everyone has a bias. The question to ask really is not, does he have a bias, but why does he have a bias? Likewise, doesn't that mean he has an agenda to push? Well, yes, he does. He's trying to convince people of the certainty of the things that actually took place. So he has an agenda. He's not ashamed about it. He wants people to know. Again, the question is, why does he want people to know? Well, let's just start with his own life that has been radically transformed through what he's seen and heard. And upon investigation, has just been more convinced than ever that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. He didn't do it for fame. He didn't do it for money. He didn't do it for popularity. None of those things actually came to pass in his life or for any of the actual apostles of the day. All of them were persecuted, as I mentioned before, and most killed for their faith. I think the answer as to why Luke was biased, why Luke had an agenda and what that agenda was, is really just found in the very book that he wrote himself. If you want to know why Luke was biased, if you want to know why and what his agenda was, Read the Bible. And that same tone is the same throughout Scripture. We don't, we don't get the impression that the Bible is, is a fairy tale that people are just trying to pass on for entertainment's sake. It is a book that is grounded in history. That's the, that is the common denominator. As you read through the New Testament, you read, you know, um, as you read through the book of Acts, which is an account written again by Luke of some of the things that the early church is, is doing and saying. And the continual thing is, you know, Jesus sends them out Right at the very start, he says, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power and high because you'll be my witnesses. And you go into all the world, etc. Uh, Peter and John, later on, they're, they're getting in trouble for, for healing people of all things. Um, and you know, they're saying, look, we can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. It's interesting, the guys didn't say, you're lying about healing people. They just said, stop healing people. Even the enemies of the church couldn't disagree with or couldn't disprove or deny the power that the church was operating in and couldn't deny the things that Jesus had done amongst them. All they could do was get them on a theological technicalities and, and trying to get them to be quiet. 
And right throughout, we see this is the thing. Paul, you know, he talks about what he's seen and what he's heard. He talks about his encounter with God. The, the whole basis is about this is something that actually happened in history. And I'm hoping that, you know, if, you're, if you've never considered that possibility before, that there's something is breaking in your mind right now. Because many people, you know, come to Christmas, come to Easter. You know, it's like Easter Bunny, it's Father Christmas. It's up there with Batman and Robin and Star Wars, all that other stuff. You know, it's just like, it's just stories. But this isn't just a story, this is history. I just want to finish by reading um, a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which just backs up that exact thing that I've been talking about. It's it's, uh, Luke's friend, Paul, and he says this. He says, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. He's talking about prophecy that was fulfilled. Seth is going to be speaking a bit about prophecy tonight. We'd encourage you to come back for that. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, 12 disciples or apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. That's a large amount of witnesses. There's no way that 500 people can have the same hallucination. It doesn't matter how good their drugs are. All right, they're going, to have different, they're going to have different stories to say about that event, but 500 people in one place saw Jesus. Uh, many of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Don't believe me? Go and ask them yourself, see what they've got to say. Though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James. James, Jesus' brother, who while Jesus was alive, was an unbeliever, but was convinced that he really was the son of God and not just some painful big brother, Upon his resurrection, James starts off talking about his Lord, Jesus, not just his big brother who he hadn't believed in the whole time he was alive. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He goes on and says, and if Christ, this is in verse 14, I've just skipped down a few verses, it says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And I'm saying the same thing this morning. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified that God, about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But in verse 20 it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. What's the proof of that? Well, the proof actually is the Gospels. It is the witness accounts. It is the last 2,000 years of church history. It is the transformed lives that are happening on a daily basis in this church and in churches across this city and across the world today. The, the whole tone of this is not take it or leave it. It's like this is the absolute gospel truth and, and that should challenge us. To, to put Jesus, you know... With the Easter Bunny, that's, that's not too confronting. A lot of people want to do that and just put him aside and, and not consider the implications for their life. But if what Jesus, if the life of Jesus as recorded in the gospel is true, if his teachings are true, if he actually did need to come and die on our behalf because of the future that all of us have outside of him doing that, well, then I think that is something that we need to take a t- And at very, very, very least, what I would be doing if I was a non-Christian 
and had never sort of heard this stuff before, I would at least be coming and asking more later on and saying, where did you get that information from? Is there anything else I can read or look at or whatever? Because I don't quite get it yet, maybe, but I just, what you said makes sense. Maybe you're further down the track than that. Maybe you've been attending this church for some time and you actually have no doubt that God is real because of what you've seen. You know, it's great last, last week, had Norm up here and he said, you know, unashamedly, not a Christian at this point, but the point he made is that if God is real, he walks among you lot. And maybe you've been around long enough and you've seen enough and you've experienced enough of God's goodness that maybe today is the day for you when you want to give your life over to God. I'd love to make an opportunity for that. If we could maybe just, just stand and bow our heads at the same time. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless.